Good morning. Uh, if you don't know me or haven't met you, my name is Joe Johnson. I am the RUF campus minister at Birmingham Southern, and my wife and children and I go here and um, love this church. I'm very thankful to be here. I'll be at the back if this is over, after this is over, and uh, would love to meet you. Um, in this season of transition, looking for a new senior pastor, I get to do this a little bit more often. I get to preach. And I'm very thankful to do that. I love uh, getting to do that. We do that Wednesday nights um, on campus with college students, and I love doing it on Sundays here with you. And one of the perks about being an RUF campus minister is that I get to preach at a lot of different kinds of churches. Um, I am the whole PCA's minister to that campus, and so technically I kind of belong to all of the PCA churches in Birmingham, and so I get invited a lot to go to different churches in the city um, and even the state uh, to go preach. And the perk of that is is that most churches, when they ask you to preach, they don't assign a text. They just kind of tell you, preach whatever you want to preach, um, and just come give us a good word. And so that means I can either uh, bring an old sermon that I really like, and kind of bring my A game, if I can say that, my best one from the past year, or I can sort of cherry pick the Bible and pick sort of uh, the easiest passages to preach, or like gospel fastballs. Now, all the Bible is profitable for teaching. It's all God's word. But I think we can all agree there are some passages that are easier than others to talk about and more comfortable than others to talk about. And I open with that because what we're about to look at in Romans 13 is not one of those passages. Um, This passage is about submitting to government authorities and paying your taxes. So aren't you glad you came to church this morning, right? Fighting the time change and getting your family here and finally getting here and getting a nice cup of coffee. And now we're talking about government and taxes from a 30-year-old who is excited. (laughs) But I hope we get to see this morning the great hope of this text, the great hope that Paul is going to put before us, which is this, that no matter where we are, no matter what government or regime is above us, no matter where the church is, and no matter what might come, our God is ruler of all. And His people will flourish in gospel living wherever He has them. And the church, the gates of hell, cannot prevail against. Uh, This is good news. This is good news for us in America. This is good news for Christians all over the world. That our God is ruler of all, even over governing authorities. And so with that, let's go to our text, Romans 13. It's on page 10 of your bulletin. And just the first seven verses. Let every person be subject to governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of those who are in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God and the avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. And honor to whom honor is owed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together and ask for God's help and blessing this morning. Father in heaven, we are going before your word. And some of it's hard and some of it is maybe a little strange to us, but it's all good. 
and we need it. In a world full of lies, we need eternal truth. And so as we, your people, come before this, your word, mold us and shape us into who you would have us be, and help us to see Jesus more clearly this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, In our family, we have a dog, uh, Penny. It's a six-year-old lab that my wife and I got our first year of marriage, um, which we can talk later if that was a mistake or not, but we love our dog. And um, uh, she is a fairly trained dog. Um, When we first got her, I spent almost all of my time trying to train her for about two months. I get really obsessed with things for a very short amount of time. And so a lot of articles, a lot of YouTube videos, a lot of like pouring into this dog to be a well-trained animal. And then after two months, I sort of said, that's good enough. So our dog now uh, obeys me pretty well and obeys my wife pretty well. She can sit. Uh, she can come when we call her. Um, she'll get off the couch when we tell her to get off the couch. Um, she'll kind of obey us, stay around us outside. The thing she has, though, the one thing that we really nailed was whenever we say the word kennel, you know, like the dog crate, um, no matter where she is, she'll go. If we're outside, inside, whatever, she will run to her bed and wait for a treat. It's like the one command that we have, and we're very proud of that. <laughs> and so she will obey me in April. Because I think she sees us as her like, ultimate authority, right? Like we are life itself for this dog. Uh, treats come from us, food comes from us, water comes from us, walk comes from us. So she obeys us like fairly well. It's sort of natural in her. The problem is, is that there's other people in our house now that our dog does not see as authorities. Namely, my four-year-old daughter, who will scream kennel at the top of her lungs, will scream get off the couch, will scream sit, and the dog will not move a muscle. Uh, we'll totally ignore our daughter, and it's a very sad thing, because my daughter, all she wants is for the dog to listen, right? So in my dog's sort of frame of reference... There is an ultimate authority that she has to obey because that's her life source. And then there's these sort of weird lesser authorities that she sees very much as optional, right? Um, In some sense, in a much greater sense, this is kind of what Paul was writing into in the Church of Rome. That there are going to be this group of Christians that are gathered together in Rome. Some of them would be very new converts. And they would be tempted to believe this. That our full allegiance is to God. He is our ultimate authority. But then we have to deal with these lesser authorities, namely Rome, that they might see as optional. That we have to obey God, but what about this governing authority that's above us? Now there's already actually been tax revolts, there's already been rebellion. So these people would actually seem to think, or be tempted to think, in gospel freedom, we actually don't have to obey the government, but only God. Now, Paul is going to blow that line of thinking up. Because what he's going to say in this section in Romans where he's talking about how the gospel impacts all of our life, how it actually forms new relationships. We have a new relationship with God now. A new relationship, even view of ourselves as children of God. And new relationships with one another as we're living in harmony together as the church. But where he gets to next in Romans 13 is our new relationship with the state. With the governing authorities that have been placed above us. And here's what Paul says. Here's what the gospel tells us to do. Here's what God is calling his people, individual people, individual Christians to do. Submit to governing authorities. That that is actually best for your good and God's glory. How does that sit with everyone, right? Why is this good news 
Well, I want to answer the question of why does Paul tell us to do this in the first place? And I have three points this morning from this text. Why are we to submit to the government? And the first is because God put them there. The second, because they're given for our good. And the third, because Jesus did. We submit to the governing authorities because God put them there, because they are given for our good, and because Jesus did. So first, we submit to governing authorities, Paul says, because God put them there. Let's look at the text again, verse 1. Paul is telling us to be subject to governing authorities. Why? Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. He roots this command to submit to governing authorities not just because our life will go easier. And he's not telling us, look, just get through this this life of yours and, and under this regime of Rome and kind of get through it. Duck your head, get through. You'll be in heaven one day and you won't have to worry about it again. No, he actually roots this command. Be subject to governing authorities because it's God who's put them there. In other words, he doesn't appeal even to the goodness of government. He doesn't appeal to their authority. He actually appeals to a greater authority that in light of God's authority in our life, we are to submit to the authorities that he puts above us. In light of God's authority, in light of our submission to God, we are to submit to what he's put above us. In some sense, this is sort of the economy of the babysitter. When you leave your children, or maybe you remember being a kid and the babysitter comes, what the parents will say is, children, obey this person as you would us. And as you get home as a parent and you ask the babysitter, how did things go? You get one of two answers. You either get a positive or negative answer. You get a positive answer like, they did great. They obeyed everything that I said. They went to bed on time. They ate their food. You have wonderful children. And you will say, of course we do. They're great children. Or you get the negative answer, which is, they were terrible. They didn't obey anything I had to say. And they're definitely not asleep now. I just locked them in the room and walked away. Right? <laughs> and then you hear that and you think, yeah, that's exactly right. Right? But when you hear that, no matter if it's positive or negative news, you hear that news and that actually doesn't reflect the goodness or the qualifications of the babysitter, right? That doesn't reflect how well the babysitter did. Because when you hear your children did great, there's a great sense of pride because they obeyed knowing that they were really obeying you. They respected your authority there. And when they disobey, the reason why you're so angry isn't for the babysitter, It's because if they really respected you and really respected your authority, they would have obeyed the babysitter, right? Paul is rooting this command, not in the goodness of authority of governments, but actually in our allegiance to God and the authority that He has in our owed submission to Him. It's a direct correlation in the way that we submit to God and the way that we respect the authorities that He puts above us. Now, I can feel it. There's an elephant in the room. What do we do when the government is actually evil? Like, what do we do when the government is actually calling us to do something that's out of accord with God's law? What are Christians called to do in regimes around the world that are actually evil and oppressive? Is Paul here saying that we have to have 100% passive submission to governing authorities no matter what? And the answer, of course, is no. That Paul actually leaves it very open here for what we would call civil disobedience. Because he doesn't raise government to this kind of godly thing, but he calls it the servant of God in verse 4. There's ministers of God to carry out his doing. And that we are to respect to where respect is owed and honor to where honor is owed. 
And actually, civil disobedience is all over the Bible, right? All the way back to Egypt and the Hebrew midwives, where Pharaoh, in order to weaken the Jews, said, kill all babies that are boys, that are born, before they're even born, before they even come, kill them. And what do the Hebrew midwives do? In response to this governing authority, what do they do? They actually lie. They disobey. In obedience to God their father, they disobey and they lie about it and say, actually, man, these Hebrew wives are like labor rock stars and the babies come before we're even there and we can't do anything about it. And that's actually counted to them as faithful. That was a great thing that they did. They disobeyed. Or think about it in the book of Daniel where King Nebuchadnezzar actually has an edict to worship idols. And Daniel's three friends, what do they do? They disobey. They disobey the governing authority that's over them. But they are also willing to take the, the judgment that comes from that government and they're thrown into the furnace that God rescues them. Daniel himself refuses to pray to Darius out of obedience to God and thrown into the lion's den and is miraculously rescued by God. Or even a New Testament example, Acts 4, where the apostles are told by the Sanhedrin, a, a religious governing authority, do not preach Jesus anymore. And what do they do? They say, we cannot help but tell this story. We cannot help but talk about Jesus. Do whatever is right in your eyes. To civilly disobey, there's an ultimate allegiance that they have, an ultimate authority. And when it comes in conflict with lower authorities, God always wins. But every one of those people were willing to take the consequences of their faith. They were actually willing to let their obedience and faith hurt. But that's not typically our day-to-day life, where we are here. But actually, where we need to see in this text is Paul really is calling us to submit where we're able to submit to the goodness of the governing authorities that are over us. To do that not because they're so great, but to do that because our God is so great. And he put it there. And our faith and trust in him. And seeing government and politics in this light, in light of God's ultimate authority, I think corrects two wrong views of politics that we see in the church today. To think too highly of government and to think too low of government and politics. It pushes back on us thinking too highly of government and politics. I actually heard one pastor, local pastor, say that he thinks the main idol, the biggest idol of the upper middle class church in America is the idol of state. Of putting all of our faith and hope in our politics and winning arguments and our side winning and putting the right people in office and having our party win. And if all that were to line up, then everything would be fine. If everyone could just understand my way of thinking. And as Sinclair Ferguson said in his church, it's actually in a capital city or was in a capital city of South Carolina filled with politicians. He actually said this, some Christians cannot look past government and politics to the God who governs all things. This pushes back on having an idol of state because we're actually obeying government not because it's so great, but because God's so great. And that God's the one who can make all things right. He is our ultimate hope to make this world better, to make this world new. Not in government, not in politics. But at the very same time, this way of thinking pushes back on thinking too low of government. And this would be very much my generation. A cynical view of government or any sort of authority for that matter. That it's a waste of time, that it's inefficient, that change will never come, that good will never come from it. And so why even participate in it? Actually, let's just make fun of it. Let's just be utterly cynical about it. Let's just go on Twitter and say whatever we want about it. But that's not what Paul's saying here either. I don't see any of that in our text. I actually see a great deal of hope. 
That God has put these things in place for our good, which we'll talk about next. And that there's no room for cynicism. And there's certainly no room for despondency. That government or whatever policies may come will hurt the church, will destroy the church. But nothing can destroy the church. Nothing can thwart God's plan. We have to see all of this in light of His ultimate authority. So before we move on, I want to broaden the application out a little bit. Where do we need to take hope in God's ultimate authority in our lives? Where do we need to take hope in His ultimate sovereignty? Even if the things in our life are hurting us. Even when sorrow comes. Even when a bad boss is above us. And a hard job situation. Can we actually see that God has not forgotten us. That He hasn't put those things in our life at random. And that He is working bringing about His purposes for His glory and our good. Including government. Including big things. Including small things. We have to see it all in light of His ultimate authority. So we submit to the government. Because God put them there. But then secondly, Paul tells us that we submit because these things are given for our good. Alright, so why does God put these governing authorities in this world? We see in verse 3. For rulers are not a terror of good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. What is the purpose of these authorities that Paul is talking about? Why are they here? Well, quite simply, to promote good and to punish evil. Verses 3 through 5. They are to bring justice. They are to bring good. They are to punish evil. They are to approve what is good. But the purpose of government, the purpose of the reason why God has given these authorities into the world is actually to make this place where we are better. To speak for the voiceless, to provide for those who don't have anything, in, uh, don't have what they need, to actually bring about justice where there's oppression, to bring mercy, to make the place where it is better, to order this world. This is what God has chosen to do to make this place better and to bring about justice. And so we as Christians should not run away from government or policies or politics, but to actually in some sense join in. That this is what God has given us to make this place, our place, better. And how are we called to join in? Well, Paul's main application here, I know we're all excited, pay taxes. To literally buy in. And not just to sort of avoid any sort of fine or any sort of consequences, but to actually put our money into the places that we live to provide for the people that are around us and to make this place better. How else are we supposed to buy in? As good citizens, that Christians are called to be good citizens? They were called to participate and to vote, right? To try and bring righteousness and wisdom into the decisions of the government that are around us. To not give up on it, but to keep on participating even in small ways. I think we're called to pray. You knew I was going to say that at one point, right? The pastor talking about government. We were called to pray for leaders. Leaders that we disagree with. Leaders that we have struggles with loving. Maybe we actually pray for them more. Leaders that we don't want in office. Leaders that we have no faith in. Do I pray for them as much as I criticize them? Or maybe we're called to actually participate in government ourselves. To actually make our community a little bit better. Local uh, communities, local governments, local committees. To actually participate in bringing about goodness and justice and righteousness. But really the main way we participate in this is to obey. Is to follow the law is to bring our goodness and righteousness here to make this place as good as we can 
and to bring justice where we can. We are called as Christians to make wherever place we are, wherever God has us, better. And actually, the passage that was read earlier by Stephen, Jeremiah 29, is God telling us that? Um, This is a passage that gets kind of ripped out of its context a lot, um, but it's a passage about God telling the exiles how to live where he's sending them. So he's taking a bunch of people who belong in a certain place, God's people in Jerusalem, and he's ripping them out of there and putting them in a place called Babylon, where they do not belong and doesn't serve God. And this is God's advice to his exiles, to his people, why they're in a place they don't belong. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent in exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, what are you called to do? Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there. Do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Seek the welfare of the city. Make the place that you are sent better. Bring justice and righteousness to it. Bring your faith to bear where I send you, and in its welfare you will find your welfare. A great example of this is Daniel himself, who was sent to Babylon, who actually was put in a position of authority and governing authorities under a person who does not believe in God. And what does he do? He's faithful and seeks to bring about welfare in that place and make it better and bring justice. Joseph, in the same way in Egypt, to make that place better, to save a lot of lives in his work and to bring justice and mercy wherever he is. We are called as Christians to love our place, where God has us. In Birmingham, in the state of Alabama, in the United States of America, we are called to love this place and not just wait for heaven. Uh, twice a year, uh, RUF sends all of its campus ministers to training. And so these are really the only two times a year that I stay in a hotel room. And um, in the summer, we go to Dallas. And in a couple of weeks, we're actually going to Denver. So all the campus ministers from around the country get together, and it's a great time of teaching and reflection on ministry. It's also just a great reunion of all of us and sort of weird jobs getting together and kind of talking about it. And I stay with one of my good friends, a campus minister I've known for a long time. We share a hotel room together, and I'm a fairly neat person. Um, my wife is here probably cringing because she knows the state of my closet right now. But like I, I keep my car clean. I keep my office clean. I try to keep things like somewhat tidy. Um, but when I stay in a hotel, it's a completely different story. Um, half-drank bottles of water everywhere, half-drank cups of coffee, trash that's not in the trash can, but actually just wherever I put it. My suitcase seems to just kind of explode whenever I walk into the room. Um, I don't take care of that place at all because I know in five days I'm leaving it and I don't really care about it. What does it look like to the world when God's people don't seem to care about the place that they are? And in some sense, we kind of treat our cities and our place and even our government sort of like a hotel room. We don't really care about it. What does that communicate to the world? It communicates that we don't care about them or this place. But ultimately, it communicates that if God's people don't care, then maybe God doesn't care. God has called us not randomly to be in this place in Birmingham and Vestavia and Mountain Brook and Homewood and Hoover and wherever we live. But he's called us for a particular reason. He's called us to bring our faith to bear in our neighbors, to preach the gospel where we can, and to bring goodness, righteousness, and mercy where we are able. Christians actually should be the best citizens of the state. We should be the most obedient citizens of the state. 
We should rebuke where we need to rebuke. But we also should love. And as Sinclair Ferguson said, actually he thinks we should remove the term fight back from our vocabulary and put serve back. We need to serve back to the places that are around us and the governing authorities that are over us. We are to submit to governing authorities because they're actually for our good. Can we see that? And to join with them, not as the church as an institution, but individual Christians serving the place that we are in. And then lastly, I'm not going to spend too terribly long on this, but we submit to governing authorities because Jesus did. So we do it because God put them there. We do it because they're for our good. But lastly, we do it because Jesus did. And this isn't exactly in this text, so I do want to be careful here. But as you read this, of Paul writing to Rome, a couple of thoughts have to come up in your brain. Uh, because Paul is telling this group of Roman Christians to submit to the Roman government. The Roman government that will, in the coming years, actually kill a lot of Christians. And maybe, ironically, or maybe even beautifully, Paul is actually writing this to submit to the government that will one day kill him. Paul will die in Rome by the Roman government. And so people reading this would be kind of shocked to hear Paul saying this. But then you have to think even further of who else had to submit to the Roman government at great cost, if not our Lord and Savior. Now Jesus didn't die in Rome, but he died at the hands of Rome, Pontius Pilate, who was Rome incarnate, the Roman power in that place. And do you remember Jesus on trial before Pontius Pilate? Do you remember the conversation that took place? Where Jesus actually tells them, you have no authority other than what's been given to you by my Father, than what's been given to you by above. But then Jesus submits. He didn't have to. He's the Son of God. But He submits and is actually put to death in a Roman execution. And in that evil act, the most evil act any government's ever done, they killed the Son of God. That actually God in that act brings about the greatest news the world has ever known. That in that death is our righteousness. That in that death our sins were conquered, death was conquered, and life was given to His people. That God even used the most evil act in the history of governments to bring about the redemption of His people. And if He did that... Will He not also be faithful to His people wherever we are? And whatever we have to endure, is it not too much to call us to be faithful in our place and to trust in our God and what He's doing, even through a weird thing like governing authorities? Where do we need to be faithful in our place and submit, knowing that God holds the world in His hands and we're bringing about His full redemption in His time and in His ways? Let me pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning as we look at your word and think about the authorities that you put uh, over us. Uh, Some of them are hard to obey. And some of them cause us much grief and anxiety. And we pray that we cast our anxieties on you and rest in your ultimate authority and your ultimate sovereignty. That you are a good, good God who loves his people and has us throughout the world to preach the good news of Jesus. And to show and reflect your authority in all that we do. Help us to do that as a church, even here in Birmingham, Alabama, and wherever we live, and in our neighborhoods, and in our schools, and in the way that we treat the civil servants that are around us. We pray, Lord, that we reflect your goodness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.